Welcome to the Pursuit of the Perfect Race. I'm Coach Terry Wilson, and with each episode, I bring stories of athletes to you that share their experiences at races in order for you to learn how to have your perfect race. We will hear stories from athletes of all ages, abilities, and races of all distances. So regardless of where you fit in, there's something in there for you. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the pursuit begin. Like cycling company is like cycling. 
some waters and waste timbers for him to take things underneath. And uh, it was a dumb club era, so, you know, the worst thing that you could have, you know, for money-wise, a real business model that actually worked and made money. Because that was the antithesis of the dumb club era. So you had to have a big business model, you weren't really sure what it was. You had to be burning through money at a massive rate and really not have any, any, any hope in the near future of actually making money. And we were in the actual box and we were making money in our second year. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a rough start. It was just, it was all bootstrapped. I mean, we made, we plugged that into the company. Wow. So I thought you guys were labeled as one of the giants of innovation in the cycling world now. Uh, looking back over the last 20 years, I mean, we can almost say 25 years in the cycling industry now. What can you look back on and say, hey, you know, these are things that we've helped change in the cycling industry? Well, I think one thing we when we started uh, the company, um, sort of sort of every um, pro team was, you know, on a round tube, steel bike, using time, just to French and help students get to that, but really, you know, that was it. You know, the true temper in America, but, you know, Pretty much round two steel. And you look back uh, when we sold the company, uh, so maybe five, seven years ago, you know, every company or every team was on an aero carbon bike. So I think we were the ones that kind of uh, pushed people in that direction. I mean, we didn't do it single handedly at all. Uh, you know, the Americans uh, had innovation were really focusing on the aero because they knew that it was well, it was well known going right back to the 80s that aero was uh, the major. Um, impediment to moving forward on a bike. Um, the Americans are the ones that are really, you know, kind of made the biggest advantage of that and they really pushed that ahead. And we were the first ones to really kind of turn into a company, I think. Um, really, it was triathlon that really created that opportunity because, you know, cyclists, they just were too tradition bound and it was too weird for them and it was almost fitting in. And um, triathletes didn't care. If one's faster, they were all for it. Um, no matter how you can look back at some of the bikes of the uh, early 90s, uh, there were some crazy-looking triathlon bikes. Well, some of them did work faster. Some of them didn't have an advantage, but some of them did. And probably a try thing to try and see what they could gain. So, uh, yeah, I think it was, it was a great time to be starting a company because people were looking for something new. So, when did you actually know that you had a curiosity to pair your engineering in your business degrees and all of this that blend into the cycling world? I think, personally, I always had a real interest in, in doing neat stuff and building stuff. Um, you know, I used to bring it back to my young days. I used to, we used to have um, some place near us that was like a, like a dump or something, and we found a bunch of uh, Volt bikes there, and um, so we'd, we'd, we'd take the bikes out, and we'd chop them up, and, you know, we'd, we'd pound on extra, like, some forks, we could have a chopper on our bike, or, you know, we'd, we'd trade the parts around, and eventually uh, the cops found out and told us, well, those are all stolen bikes, <laughs> so we got a little bit of trouble, but it's, uh, you know, we, but we had a lot of fun and we made stuff and it was like, you know, and Greg still made another friend of mine. We, I don't know, we had this brilliant idea to make a, a hovercraft, um, you know, out of an old uh, speedboat. So, yeah, we took it into this shop at school and we cut the whole thing apart and 
it's like it was a way beyond what we could actually do, but you know, we just I'm always like making stuff, you know. And um, so yeah, it just goes goes back. Uh, I think my parents kind of instilled that sort of the choice of it, be creative. Um, we had lots of Lego and material at home, and we were always making stuff, and it was just I think I just kind of created a um, you know, interest in creative things and building things that, I, that I've always had. Did you do your imagination? Yeah, I mean, there's, your imagination is a, a dead-tap tool. So, I mean, we've, there's a lot of studies. There's actually been some really good um, video online. It's a TED Talk by, what's his name? I'll find, it, I'll find the name for you. Um, anyways, he talks about what they did. They were invited in to look at NASA and help us find the most creative people because NASA needed the most creative people um, to work on their biggest projects. So it's going to help us find the most creative people. And so they came up with a way to do that. And, uh, and then they started applying it. They said, you know, uh, let's start applying it throughout your life and find out how creativity is when you're, when you're young and as you grow older and go through the schooling system. How does it, how does it increase your, your creativity? And um, what they found was that like 98% of, uh, of children, like five year olds, uh, were super creative. You know, it's the same as the same uh, number of the same creative aspects that you're looking for at NASA uh, when you're 30. Like 98% of kids have when they're five. But what happens over the, over the life cycle as you go through school is we beat that creativity out of people somehow. That's basically it. But somehow we have the school uh, system where we take the creativity out of it. And by the time you get to um, your 30s and you've gone through university and you've got your first job, the creativity, the number of super creative people has gone from 98% to basically 2%. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a, that a huge challenge for our educational system is how do we increase uh, the creativity? And then you think about it from what we're trying to do to, pe- to be with people in a company to be creative. I mean, the lesson is like a five year old. So, you know, that's one thing you so when you're searching for ideas and going for ideation, ideation sessions, you better remove all the barriers um, and the fight to flight, fight or flight uh, mechanisms people have there and really want to stupid. That's a stupid idea. I shouldn't even mention that. It's like, well, there's no such thing as a stupid idea. It's one of the craziest ideas I've ever seen. Someone will talk riff off of that and go, wait a minute, if we did this, but it's not a really good idea. So, um, yeah, that was one thing. Um, Steve Jobs is always famous for was, you know, both the crazy ones. Uh, it's also about crazy environmental layer. I was just reading this article about the, what happened on Mount Everest in uh, the late 90s, and it's literally about how it's creating the environment of learning, and no one is going to feel bad for sharing what they think. Yeah, absolutely. And you need to, uh, sorry, I mean, this is kind of leads into what I did after, uh, after Cerullo and just thought asked me to kind of figure out, okay, so you guys, you're pretty, uh, innovative company, how do we, how do we instill that same creativity and innovation in, in our other high school companies? And, uh, and Jared and I, we just, we just thought the same way, and we just did that. It's just like, that's what we wanted to do. And we had a lot of fun making cool stuff that made a difference. And, uh, but, you know, and then I had to kind of, well, how do we bottle that and transfer that to the people? And that's what I 
with our state community or whatever, uh, from an engineering standpoint. So it was a matter of like, I guess we just really didn't really listen to people when they told us we can't do that or whatever. It's like, it's just like, personally, there's, there's a, a matter of kind of thinking like a five year old, so of course we can do that. It's just like, why not? And then just ignoring people and then the entire thing that both are talking about. Or whenever you were hung up on quite a bit in the early days, just you had to know about what was going on. Yeah. Like, was, we just found ways to make, make things work with our, uh, you know, with our limited resources. I mean, we didn't have all the testing equipment, so, you know, we kicked the nuts so we were testing it on a bike. We had kind of put it on its, mounted it on its tail, and then, you know, basically dropped that brick on it to see if it, if it uh, would bend the sword. It's like, you know, still wasn't a proper drop down, but, you know, you may have increased the weight of the brick by 50% and it doesn't reach the threshold. It's probably good enough. So, uh, it's kind of fun. Benefit of ways of doing things. You know, we're, we built stuff in the basement and just, we took it down to whatever we could get into for a wind tunnel that was cheap. Um, you know, and we find creative solutions. I mean, back, back in those days, you go to Texas Anarm or, or New Year's and people just go in and that's fine. There was no money to be made in aerodynamics at that point. No one really had a bike company. And it was a session that was all organized by Steve and he just invited a whole bunch of friends down and every night we'd kind of trade stories of what you found at the local Applebee's. So you're sitting around the table, you know, this is what we did, this is what we found, and you, you just you learn uh, from everybody else. Those are some crazy times that we just kept on an idea of like, let's try it. Try and build it to see if it works. If it doesn't work, you know, we'll try something else. Um, so I think that culture of experimentation is fun to kind of like, it's how are we going to design this? How are we going to build it? You know, it's a bunch of wood and old bike frames that we sawed up and uh, covered in mylar and, and vinyl and, you know, stuck on the landfill. You're good enough to, to prove a point. Wow. So now that we can have look back a little bit more, I know there's, um, you actually were quite vocal on one issue of the steering for the fork in 2008. What happened here for you actually want to kind of go forward and actually call for a change in the entire industry? Yeah, we, we started making forks to actually, um, well, we were uh, working with uh, True Temper on the forks. And, um, and they were, you know, we said, okay, we'll give you the shape you want, and you bring your knowledge of how to make uh, a really good fork. And, um, and they were really, you know, adamant that they had to have control over the layout. And they were really close, especially some more carbon people, you know, we know a little bit about it. And they, they were quite, they pushed away quite hard. And, um, and they said, you know, we'll, we'll prove that it's going to be the testing, we'll give you the test report, whatever. So fine. Um, and then we had a recall on those forks, and everybody like, what the heck's going on here? Why is it, why is it failing? We couldn't feel why it was failing. And, um, and eventually we did. And uh, it was like, okay, so the, the, one of the lessons was that the tests that we had in the industry didn't really replicate real life. This is a consistent problem uh, that we were finding kind of as we found as we've gone through the last 25 or 30 years in the industry, is the tests are designed as tests. They aren't designed necessarily to replicate what's really happening in the field. So if you 
if you're like in, in a stone lost and you need a road track or you know a trip over and you get the steer, you can actually crack the steer uh, internally on a huge crack, a little crack. And depending on the design of the steer, it could then propagate as you're, as you're you know, pumping, you know, pumping force as you're reaching on the bars. Um, you know, it would just slowly crack and then get worse. And, uh, and so after we figured this out, we said, oh, okay, so if you're going to lead a solvent, we came with a test that basically you're going to intentionally put a certain amount of energy in this gear, like to get it hard. And some folks would actually crack, uh, some wouldn't. When they were sitting in the jig, and we would basically simulate what was happening, riding the, the, uh, the fork for another, I think we used a couple hundred thousand samples. And, uh, and if things failed by that point, we found that they would never, or if things hadn't failed by then, they would never fail. Um, but if it failed in those hundred or two hundred thousand cycles, we thought that was a very good indicator of what would fail in the field. So we said, okay, there's a, there's a new test, um, you know, but we should be dealing with this because the problem of a, you know, a forced gear failing, um, you put a tool belt in and go, yeah, there's a phase going on asphalt. Exactly. There's, a, there's almost no way that you're going to recover from that. Um, so you're going to crash. Um, and then the question is, okay, how badly are you going to crash? How badly are you going to be hurt? And not just you. If you're, like, if this happens in a tour, you're going to take out yourself at least and maybe 20, 30, 40 to give it even. Yeah, totally. So it was our case to, like, uh, you know, first of all, we're not testing for this in the industry. There is no industry test for it. So why would we keep this to ourselves? It's actually making everybody safer. So, you know, again, you know, it was a, our failure, uh, but we learned from it, and then we just, we made the information available to everybody else, um, and we pushed hard to get it incorporated in, uh, as an ASTM, um, standard test. Okay, I don't know, I don't know what that acronym means. Uh, American Society of Testing Materials. Okay. So they used to be, be before we had ISO standards, which are kind of the, different organizations that did it in different areas. Um, ASTM was more American, and there is a TV that did something more germany, and now it's so now it's kind of like, so, I mean, this is what this is we said, you know, everyone should be doing it. We tried to make everyone aware of this, because there were, it wasn't just us that was letting steer failure, there were some other classic ones that uh, George and Kepi actually went down with a, a failed steer. Um, and there were quite a few other people as well. So we said, you know, this is something like we've got to ask the industry. We have to take care of our, of our clients. We can't go around telling our clients it's not bad looking for business. Um, and so we were just kind of like, let's just tell everyone how we should be dealing with this and how we found it. And, and I still feel that's really important. Like if every, every season, take your, take your bike apart, you know, pull that steer out and really look at it. Um, look at it in detail. Look for any sort of a minor crack. Um, and then, um, you know, if you're, if you're like, if you really think there might be something there, I'd, I'd suggest that you take a band so I can cut it in half and see if you see there's a, a crack there. No, you're, and you're, well, you know, you've ruined your fork now. Good. Time to buy a new fork. It's like, maybe they just have this test that said, if you're thinking about reusing a bolt, um, look at it carefully, inspect it carefully, like wipe it all off, go to the edge of the ship. It's thrown as far as you can, and it sucks for you, is it? It's kind of like, this is the 
same thing with the forks. Forks could be basically cut in half, and if you see there's a no crack there, well, yeah, too bad. It's like you just gotta, you can't take a chance on the fork. Your ass is on the line, or your face is on the line. So, yeah. That's a pretty good concept like that. <laughs> so, that I kind of move on here, what did the curiosity of power meters and torque and for, I know, where did all this come from? I know you served on the board before, but if you're in a position with the animal, what happened and where did all this place come from? Well, it was, uh, when I was applying doing this innovation and trying to drive innovation across all of our like, brands, we recognized that, you know, that, uh, Technology was really becoming super cheap, um, and it could be applied in so many unique ways. So, right around that that time, like before, like seven, eight years ago, um, you know, cost of uh, you know cellular access was, was plummeting to to basically nothing. You said something cellular access, sorry, cellular access, so like uh, cell phones, okay, which you can get, you can you can build a cell phone into a piece of uh, electronics. And it could, you know, could easily be like, then you could just transmit it to a cell tower. So it became super cheap to do that. Okay. Um, the chips got turned down to, you know, 25 bucks or something. Um, and then you the battery, which, uh, you know, the actual cost of accessing slowly, if you went to, um, to telecom or you went to ATT, you said, you know, you just need this transmit data on it. Um, the, the cost of that was, was trivial, it was almost nothing. Okay. Um, and so the cost of computer memory was really cheap. And, you know, the cost of chipsets was super cheap. And you go, wow, all this stuff is coming together. So suddenly you can get pretty much anything you want for almost nothing. And uh, it just opened up this whole opportunity of, like, what could we do with this? And so we went to our brands and we said, okay, this is what's happening in this, in this space right there. What does it mean for your brand? Um, you know, something like Cervello, you know, meaningful for their customers is going to be able to store it to what it was valuable to Santa Cruz or to Hazella or Kalkoff. You know, each brand had a different, different focus. You know, it's high end, uh, high end road, high end mountain, you know, city bikes, um, city bikes in, in, the, in uh, the Netherlands, which is a little bit different than city bikes in Germany. You know, e bikes. All those different uh, market segments have different potential needs. So we said, you both go and figure out what you could do with this. And um, so we started looking around for, you know, partners that would be interesting and, and people that were capable of working on the tech side with us. And that's how I kind of stumbled across Four Eyes um, because we didn't look at them so much as a power company, but as a, as a tech company, a sport tech. They really need technology and how it could be implemented really uh, inexpensively. And um, so I started chatting with them way back then and just kind of kept in touch with them about um, things beyond power meters. Like, what did you do? Like, I mean, they listen to themselves as a power meter company. And they started off making glasses for sport. They would have a visual radio to give you LEDs up in the corner that would tell you what, what, what zone you were in. Uh, your training was, you know, if you could have any sort of sensor. So if you're, you're saying, oh, you want a hydration sensor and you, you want a, a body temperature sensor, you could have to the glasses that would say, hey, give you a warning. Um, and that product was kind of ahead of its time. Um, then they went into heart rate monitors. Um, and so they were building a heart rate monitor, but 
that's funny. Uh, a lot of people were applying them after they had cardiac, master cardiac surgery. As their doctor would say, you know, you've got to have a really good heart rate monitor that can monitor heart rate variability or and that sort of thing. And so we had a really good heart rate monitor that was already well in that, in that segment uh, as well as support. So, um, and then they were doing thyroid power meters. So I just started realizing these guys had some real technology chops and could think outside the box of, well, we're not a power meter company, we're a support tech. How can we apply uh, all this new changes in technology to make uh, the experience uh, of a rider or a triathlete better? And um, there's not too many people that, that can do that, that have, that have the real background in the sport. As tech companies, um, they don't really think about you know, how you're going to use it. So the big thing about Torahs is they're, they're a huge bunch of riders. So you have a bunch of riders, they're also a bunch of techies. And it's a kind of unique thing because they have a unique background and, and uh, way of doing things. Okay. So they basically provide this interesting point of view with all the resources that they can get out of the world and bring it into the industry of sport, triathlon, and biking. And where did you fit in this? And how did you get involved formally with them? Well, that's right. I was saying I see this real opportunity in the market, and uh, I was working with a couple of companies that we were trying to develop something like that. That would be, you know, how can we deal with loading on on a bike? How can we how can we use it more effectively? Um, those haven't really gone anywhere, but I, I still think they have really good potential. And, and Forize is a company that can deliver that. I mean, they they also they work with a variety of different companies, so they do a lot of indoor cycling. Um, so, do a bunch of things with, you know, both weight, weights and weight machines, and also with indoor cycling. Um, so, they're, they're capable of making it unique in different ways of, of innovating um, that a lot of companies, I think, are not. So, uh, and, and they're really committed to doing things uh, and democratizing power and giving people really easy access to all these new tools that are out there. Um, so, their idea was not to have. You know, a super expensive power meter, but to have the best power meter, but also have the best price. And you don't hear that very often. It's someone's trying to make the best thing, but also do it really, really inexpensively. So uh, that was kind of what I thought was pretty exciting about them. And I guess that's what it is. So, you know, that's why I got really excited about them as a company. And then uh, last year, I said, Would you like to come on the board? Because we've been chatting about things. And I said, Yeah, that'd be, that'd be fun. And uh, that was that came on really just before COVID. <laughs> and so, you know, we're, we're looking at, I think every company was going, holy crap, what's happening to us? Um, you know, just the world could, we don't know, we didn't really know where anything was going in February or, or March of, of earlier this year. So, and other boards have been on as well. The board was getting really involved in, in daily operations. Just how can we help them? You know, what can we do? Um, so, with, Institutions for eyes, just like we had some really guys who were helping us find uh, more financing and uh, making sure we were stable from that standpoint. And my background was more in the, the operational side, so I was supposed to help on that side of it. So I'm, you know, in the company acting now, whereas most of the board members are, are working on other things behind the scenes a little bit more. Because I know Travel Magazine said that. Uh, so much for semi-retirement because you were 
because they see the, you know, the things that are tremendous for it. So, you know, it's a really unsatisfying, unique uh, company in that, you know, it has this capability that goes beyond just cycling. Um, but actually, some of these ideas came out of the, of the power meter and out of things we're doing in the sport and can then be applied into other, other areas. Um, so, you know, how can we instrument other things? How can we instrument industrial applications or motors or, you know, oil and gas wells? Um, so, we can do that with the technology that we have in the company that was originally developed, developed for sport. Okay. So, um, we can have established what four ideas from the underlying products and, or not underlying, but the products and what they do and what are they doing. But now then, from the athlete's point of view, I mean, I have to be honest, uh, whenever I look at the prices of four ideas products in comparison to the power meters out there, it's a lot cheaper, which you can explain why that is. But how can athletes get past this uh, notion that cheaper can be better? Because <laughs> it's a real thing. Well, it's totally what I mean. As a consumer, you're brought up to always look at, you know, when you don't have other reference points, you look at price as an indicator of quality. It's, it's a standard thing, and I always look at that in business school. Everyone, everyone knows that the higher price must be higher quality. But Forrest uh, decided that they weren't going to play that game. So they went away, and then they looked away at what else is doing, however, and they said, well, that's totally accurate because um, A, you're not testing it the right way, and B, you're only picking up from one particular body or one particular situation. And it turns out that everyone's different. Everyone rides different. Everyone's pedaling style is different. Like you might push down harder at the top of the stroke, and some people push down all the way through and actually really stomp on the bottom of the, of the, of the pedal stroke. And the neat thing is, is that I said, well, you know, to pick all these, the differences up. And the different shapes of cranks, I think that's three string gauges on the crank. You have a much better picture of what is actually happening in that crank. So everyone is different. And this, uh, and this uh, 3D string gauge works for all pedaling styles. So that's something that makes a huge difference. Um, and then not only that, but we said, okay, well, let's invalidate that. So we saw why that wasn't my idea. It's a good thing that I know that just, you know, putting a, a strain gauge on a, like on a motorized uh, thing to, to check what it's actually check the way that people really ride. So they went to uh, Dr. Cram at the University of uh, Colorado Boulder, and he was doing a lot of work in this area. And so they, they actually measured the accuracy by putting it on the bike with a rider on a, on a treadmill. So that's an incline, so you can actually measure exactly the way you're riding the bike. So it's written on a bike, and they can measure the exact power versus the measured power. And, you know, you get a real a real accurate measure, whereas other people are not doing it that way. So they're really focused on making it really, really good. But, you know, they've never, never lost sight of their goal is to, to democratize power and have it available to everybody. If you're a young person getting into... Um, Cycling. I mean, that power meter is an expensive piece of kit. And so the later piece is to get it because you already have a bike, you already have all the gear to do a triathlon, and your watch more than likely comes with a heart monitor or your bike computer does. So a power meter is like that, usually the last piece to get. That's just because it's expensive. But we now know that the benefits of training with power are super well established. And, um, you know, you can learn to do it your 
problem and make things successful because it's the biggest, I mean, it's the way to try to go and no one can argue with that. So we're just taking that last barrier away to make it, you know, because we're also trying to power as well. So you get all the benefits, you know, it'll be close to, well, in our case, from 299, you get a, a really good power meter, you know, three years to engage power meter for 299. is a pretty, pretty sweet offer. All right. So, uh, Thank you. 
baptized. Um, and uh, we got one from my wife that's a single-sided. So the single-sided one is, is you know, is needed less expensive version. The dual does give you more visibility, and you do find that, you know, it, uh, they really can appreciate and take advantage of the difference there because they can look at what's happening side to side if there's any imbalances, how their how their balance is changing over you know over a long race or over a training program. But uh, really, I would say 95 percent of the value, or at least 90 percent of the value, off of the least expensive single-sided option, um, and you know we always call them. Uh, a modifiable tiger and race, and um, which can also have it installed in your own So, you know, if you're saying, well, you know, I really like my um, my SSA crank uh, or my Campanile crank, yeah, no problem. Just send us your crank and we can install it on that. Um, so, 40 or so with the fire engine. It's usually a little longer, but it's usually uh, a week. You know, give it in, in two weeks now, and we're just fighting with a bit of a backlog from. The coronavirus and also the shipping times are, are significantly worse and getting better. Um, but you know, the global shipping is a real mess there. Some stuff from uh, from China that took three months to get here for themselves. So, uh, you know, we as a company, I think, really get preferential um, treatment from the logistics carriers. It's a little bit longer for us, but it's, it's not that bad. But, you know, consumers in general, if you're ordering things, um, I think they're finding that it's, it's problematic, or I think the time was problematic coming out of Minnesota. I think we're getting ready a little bit of time um, with FedEx and UPS, uh, but it's still pretty good. Okay. So, uh, kind of wrap up here. Uh, I know you see the future of triathlon changing, and even just the cycling and the cycling community changing a little bit more. Where do you see everything going? That's a tough one to imagine. I mean, is it going to come back? How is it going to come back? I mean, from the standpoint of those companies, including ours, that we're looking at it and going, well, we have proven that, you know, the technology exists through Zoom and Google Meets to have really, really good um, valuable uh, discussions and meetings me, online. So, and our, our engineers are loving it. They're more productive. They're liking it. Um, they don't like really talking about work. Uh, there's no noises. Um, at the same time, we're also finding now that there's a social aspect that we are missing. And, um, and that's creating a little bit of a challenge, you know, especially going to the factory because we've tried to do a lot of the factory. Um, and we don't want to be going in without a, without a COVID test. So um, we did an inventory, you know, yesterday, and uh, we made sure that you know, anyone going into the factory had to make had to have a COVID test to show you were clean. Because the worst thing that could happen is go in and you know, have things spread through the factory. So um, I think that really we're going to continue to, to have an element of remote work for a long time. Everyone's finding it works, and we have the tools to do it. I mean, if this happened 15 years ago. Pre-Zoom, pre-smartphone. Uh, I mean, it would be a disaster. I mean, it would be a huge problem. I mean, we've, we've taken some stuff and we've done it in people's houses, like some actual work. We've done neurologists. Um, so that's been pretty neat. Like some people say, hey, I'd rather work from home than I actually, you know, build parts in my garage. So yeah, actually, we've, our, once, uh, once, uh, once a week, I guess our engineering manager goes and picks up 
I can do a little production for us to be. So that's my goal for now. Well, Phil, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I look forward to following forward in the future. Okay. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. You have a great day. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you were able to learn something from today's episode. If you enjoy the show, please take a minute to leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to see pictures from this athlete's race, learn more about who I am, what I'm doing, or be on the show yourself to share your story, check out my website at CoachTerryWilson.com. Until next time, continue the pursuit.